Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on December 6, 2018, addressing the Section 163J proposed regulations. The panelists for this webcast include Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax principal, Matthew Chen, a PwC tax partner, and Susan Conklin, a PwC tax director, all part of our international tax services practice, as well as Karen Lonis, a PwC tax partner in our mergers and acquisitions practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of the application of the Section 163J proposed regulations for controlled foreign corporations and U.S. shareholders. Have a listen. Matt, would you mind speaking a little bit about the specifically the CFC rules? Sure. And, and the concepts we've talked about up to this point, concepts dealing with partnerships and domestic C-Corps, they are actually relevant as well. So we're kind of building up on concepts we already discussed. And as far as the CFCs are concerned, 163J rules are made to apply to what they call applicable CFCs in these regulation. And I'll I'll just jump in because I think the headline here is that the 163J regs apply to CFCs. That's right. And and so we'll get into that point as well. And so not all CFCs are subject to these rules. Applicable CFCs are, and they are CFCs that have at least one 10% U.S. shareholder. That's a direct or indirect U.S. shareholder. So because of the changes made to the 2017 Tax Act and changes to the downward attribution rules, you could have situations where a foreign corporation is wholly owned by a foreign parent directly, but is treated as a CFC because of downward attribution. So when you look at the picture on this slide, that's the picture on the bottom. The uh, foreign sub is a CFC in that picture, but it is not an applicable CFC because it doesn't have a direct or indirect 10% U.S. shareholder. So these rules only apply to them and uh, to applicable CFCs, such as the one shown at the top of uh, above picture. And these rules are relevant for purposes of computing subpar F income, ECI, and tested income for guilty purposes. As in the case with domestic corporations, 163J doesn't have an impact on the calculation of ENP for applicable CFCs. And to Rebecca's point, I mean, the headline is 163J applies to CFCs at all. Prior to these regs, I think many of us thought that it's possible that 163J would apply for ECI purposes and maybe even for subpar F purposes because of a subpar F regulation that treats CFCs as domestic corporations for purposes of computing their taxable income. But it was debatable as to whether 163J should apply to calculate guilty tested income because CFCs that don't have ECI and aren't subject to U.S. tax may not be treated as taxpayers for purposes of 163J. That may be the case. And also the subpar F regulation that's cited and used by these regs is a subpar F regulation, and we all know that tested income is not subpar F income. But in any event, until the regs become final, when the regs become final, it will be clear at that point that 163J would apply for guilty tested income purposes. And these rules would also 
modify the calculation of taxable income of U.S. shareholders of applicable CFCs. And we'll talk about the double counting rule and the add-back rule that apply to those U.S. shareholders later on. And we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about this concept of a CFC group election. We'll go to the next page. And, and Matt, not to give the audience homework, but this is an area where um, if folks think that the rules ought not to apply to CFCs, particularly in the computation of guilty tested income, mm -hmm. this is absolutely a place to submit comments. That's right. Um, right. And in fact, they requested comments. In fact, they did. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a place where not just providing the comment that we would prefer if it didn't, but providing support as to why there's statutory authority and technical basis for excluding them. So um, folks in the audience ought to be thinking about that both individually and through their trade groups. Right. And they are asking for examples of situations where CFCs ought to be exempted from the application of 163J. And one other comment that was requested in the preamble is to whether certain items of income or deductions that are expressly limited to domestic corporations should be counted for purposes of 163J calculation. So one example that was given was the sec new Section 245 Cap A DRD. Should that be taken at the CFC level for purposes of 163J limitation? Mm -hmm. But as a general matter, um, CFCs would calculate their 163J limitation using the same rules that would apply to domestic corporations on a separate company or separate CFC by separate CFC basis. And if CFCs have effectively connected income or ECI, which Susan will talk about a little later, there are special additional rules that apply. And at the U.S. shareholder level, the general rule is that the adjusted taxable income of the U.S. shareholder is subject to a so-called double counting rule. And what it does is to back out subpar F inclusions, 956 inclusions, Section 78 deemed dividends, and also guilty inclusions. They're allocable to a trader business. And the idea behind this double counting rule is that since certain income is already counted at the CFC level, to get their 163J limitation, they shouldn't be counted again. Um, so on, on the surface, it is a it is a unhelpful rule because you're backing out items of income. But when we talk about the CFC group election later, the effect of this rule is reversed and maybe mostly reversed under the so-called add-back rule, which we'll talk about. And so what what is the CFC group election? The idea is that in a group of highly related CFCs. So the preamble talks about the concept of highly related CFCs that may have borrowings with each other. Mm -hmm. And since CFCs generally have to calculate their 163J limit on a company by company basis, you could have a mismatch of income and deductions, meaning if one CFC borrows from another and the recipient of the interest will include that interest in tested income for guilty purposes. But the payor of the interest may be limited um, under 163J, and therefore creating incremental guilty inclusion that may not be appropriate. And so a, this so-called group election, CFC group election, is created, and it is an irrevocable election that, once it's made, um, can alleviate the impact of 163J, 
163J limitation at the CFC level. So we'll talk about who's eligible to make the election. You first need to have two or more applicable CFCs and a single U.S. shareholder that directly or indirectly owns at least 80% of their stock. Or, or um, if they're not the same single U.S. shareholder, then at least related U.S. shareholders have to own the same proportion ownership. For this purpose, consolidated group members are treated as one single person. And so those are CFCs that can constitute a CFC group with respect to which an election can be made. And once the election is made, all eligible members of the group have to make the election and it's irrevocable. Um, but certain CFCs are left out of the group. So CFCs that have ECI, um, they can't use the alternative method under the election. And CFC group members that are considered to be financial services financial services subgroup members, they will have their own separate group calculation. So those rules would apply to eligible CFCs under 954H2, qualified insurance companies under 953E, or dealers, um, CFCs that can use the dealer exception for purposes of calculating foreign personal holding company income. And Th th these rules are not relevant just to what we, we would say traditional um, banking and insurance companies, and they may affect CFCs that are, um, for example, um, Rebecca, you can... Yeah, I mean, we, we see all the time um, entities that are um, you know, using the active financing exception because they regularly make uh, loans to customers in the ordinary course of their business um, in, in environments that are not traditional financial services. I mean, a lot of our time in the technology and fintech space is built around the premise that the idea of historic financial services business is evolving over time. And, and that sort of inquiry is what you'd need to run to figure out who can be grouped, because I think people view the grouping election rightly or wrongly, as the solution to the major pain points around applying 163J at the CFC level, because, and I'm going to say something that I'll throw back to you, Matt, as you talk about the mechanics, um, people seem to say, well, if I can group all my CFCs into one group and I can make the group election, then I don't have to worry about 163J so long as I don't have external debt at the CFC level. That that may be theoretically the concept when the rule is designed, but of course, like everything else, sort of the devil's in the details. And um, the, the way that the election works at the CFC group level and at the U.S. shareholder level, we, for a high-level intro like we're doing today, we, we're not going to be able to go through every possible step of the calculation, but at a very conceptual level. Um, at the CFC group member level, what you do is you first calculate um, what the regs call the applicable net business interest expense of the group. And that's really the, the, the excess of the sum total of the business interest expense of each group member over the sum total of their business interest income. And once you calculate that sum total, you then allocate that net amount to each group member um, using a me mechanical fraction. And when the group election is made, you start this calculation at the bottom of the tier and you kind of roll up um, the excess ETI of each CFC member up the chain until you reach the top tier. And at, at that top tier, meaning the first CFC that's held by a U.S. shareholder um, directly or indirectly through a foreign pass-through. So then at the U.S. shareholder level, remember we said earlier that there is a double counting rule that backs out 
the U.S. shareholders, subpart F inclusion, 956 inclusion, and guilty inclusion allocable to a trader business. But once the group election is in effect, you are then subject to add back rule where you can add back some, not all, but some portion of the inclusions that you had to back out earlier. And uh, of course, there's a separate defined term created in the regulations for the amount that's added back. And that defined term added to the U.S. shareholders adjusted taxable income is what's called the eligible CFC group ETI. And that won't be exactly the same number that rolls up at the CFC level to the top of the group. It has to be adjusted based on the sum total of taxable income of the CFC group members and the sum total of the inclusions that are attributable to those group members. And we do have a couple of examples, I think. Um, we were not, this, there's a lot of text on these examples. We're not going to go through them more about left behinds, um, more for left behinds. But um, with a few minutes left, I will, we should talk a little bit about inbound consequences. Well, how do these rules look when we think about this in the ECI context? Well, in the ECI context, and this is on the next slides, but we're going to move ahead here. But um, it, the rules apply to foreign persons that have ECI. And essentially, you have to figure out all of your attributes, ATI, business interest expense, business interest income, and floor plan financing income only with respect to your ECI items and carve out all your non-ECI items. Um, there are special rules um, where your your foreign person is a partner in a partnership, and special calculations are required for that. And then, but as a general matter, you determine how much business interest expense you have under the 882-5 regulations, which have been around for a very long. That's it's the general rule you you calculate how much of your interest expense is allocable to ECI under those rules and then you apply 163J to um to that allocable interest expense um and they have clarified also that uh these rules don't affect your calculation of branch profits tax it you know, deduct your interest expense is fully deductible for effectively connected E&P purposes, just as it is for domestic corporations under E&P purposes. So, and it doesn't affect U.S. net equity either. And Susan, as we move to the transition rules. Basically, they uh, provide that disallowed interest expense carried forward um, from old 163J, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. can be used now under new 163J, except to the extent that it's allocable to an accepted trader business. So obviously, um, that would get carved out and treated separately. Um, and also, once again, no excess limitation under um, the new 163J, so that's out as well. And then um, they also provide rules for um, allocating your carry forwards to other among group members from old 163J. Mm -hmm. um, now, interestingly enough, um, the new proposed regs do not make any mention of allocations under the old proposed regs when people were using the super affiliation concept. And I think that's really just a, a legal matter that they're not, they couldn't force people to follow those proposed regs, so they can't quite force people to allocate things for having followed those proposed regs. Um, 
They do clarify that uh, Section 382 can apply to disallowed interest carry forwards, and that, uh, and then they um, they do address when a corporation subject to 163J um, joins a consolidated group that began before January 1st, 2018, and then other 382 um, issues here that they discuss as well, and then. As a final point here, um, we do have, it's not transition rules, but just to mention, these rules are very, very broad, and they apply to all sorts of taxpayers, including RICs, REITs, and tax-exempt orgs. Now, for tax-exempt orgs, it's only with respect to their unrelated business taxable income, um, and they do Obviously, we mentioned accepted businesses, the biggest one, the elephant in the room is the real property businesses, but also exceptions for regulated utilities and certain other special industries like farming, etc. So, Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.